Good morning. You can open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4 for the scripture reading this morning. And as you turn to 1 John chapter 4, I just want to take a moment to thank you for your faithful prayers as we serve the Lord in Italy, uh, seeking to evangelize uh, the Italians uh, in the, what's called the Graveyard of Missionaries. So you can keep praying for us, but we're so thankful for your partnership with us and your prayers as we serve the Lord there. 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Well, the following that I'm going to read to you is an excerpt from a famous speech that was given in 1922. Here's what it says. My feelings as a Christian point me to my Lord and Savior as a fighter. It points me to the man who once in loneliness, surrounded only by a few followers, recognized these Jews for what they were and summoned me to fight against them. In boundless love as a Christian and as a man, I read through the passage which tells me how the Lord at last rose in his might and seized the scourge to drive out the temple, the brood of vipers. How terrible was his fight for the world against the Jewish poison. Adolf Hitler. And with these words, he took the words that Jesus spoke to a select group of wicked men at that period in history and with one broad brushstroke painted an entire people group with the same brush labeling them as poison. And he paved the way for the killing of six million of them, a holocaust in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, I realize that's a really extreme example of what the point of this series is about. That is an extreme example of twisting a part of God's word to serve your own agenda or to fit what you want to do. It's an example of a Bible verse or a Bible passage being ripped from its context and insensitively and grossly applied to commit a very heinous crime. 
But I hope it illustrates the importance of what we're trying to do. It's not that we think that people are malicious like Hitler was and using scripture. In fact, most of the times that scripture is twisted, it's not twisted in any sort of malicious way. A lot of times it's unintentional. It's just not careful. But nonetheless, if God's word is God's word and God is speaking through the word that he has definitively written in this book, then we have to take care in how we speak it and in what we use it for. So this morning we're going to begin a new series of sermons. It's going to take us through the months of June and July that we're entitling Twisted, the most misused verses in the Bible. So we're going to walk through about eight or nine passages of scripture that are often wrenched from their context and applied in erroneous ways to the hurt of people and I believe the dishonor of God. Now the Bible itself acknowledges the reality that in scripture that scripture itself can often be twisted. For instance, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Listen to these verses. There are some things in them, that is the scriptures, that are hard to understand. Now, that's a, that's an, that's a great, honest statement in the, in the Bible. That the Bible itself acknowledges that from time to time, we're going to encounter passages of scripture that are going to be hard to understand. And Peter specifically writing about the letters of Paul here. And so as we read the New Testament and the Old Testament, we're going to come across passages of scripture. I mean, this week I came across passages of scripture that jar me. This week I'm sitting in devotions with my son reading passages of scripture that I'm having difficulty explaining to him. So we, we, we're going to encounter this our whole lives. And it's not to say that every time that we encounter this part of Scripture that we should just say, oh, Scripture's just too tough to understand, because that's not true. There are certain parts of Scripture that are hard to understand. But the whole story of the Bible is very clear. And most parts of Scripture are with sensitivity to context and some basic understanding of biblical principles and interpretation you can figure out what they mean. It's not, it's not like God is trying to keep something hidden from us or that scripture itself is trying to be unclear. Let me get back to Second Peter here. Going, keeping, continuing my reading of Second Peter 3.16, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist, there's our word, twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So this idea of twisting scripture because we're either ignorant or unstable or something else is a reality. And it's something we need to be aware of. Now there, like I said, many reasons that this happens and they're not always malicious or evil within their intention. Um, but sometimes they are. And sometimes scripture is twisted in order to fit something that we already believe. Or it's twisted to because we don't like what the Bible is saying. And we would prefer not to hear it that way. 2 Timothy 4 gives us this reason for why scripture is sometimes twisted. 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So it's that idea is I don't like what I'm hearing. I want to find someone who will tell me what I want to hear. And so I'm going to dismiss scripture in that way. So then it's of paramount importance to us that we interpret scripture correctly in its context and follow the command 
that were given in 2 Timothy 2.15. Now, this command is mainly directed to those who teach and preach God's word, but I think it has an application to all of us as Christians to be careful in the way we handle scripture. 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That's a command. Do your best to rightly handle the Bible. And that's what we hope to learn how to do in this series. So we're going to come to this morning of the, to the first of our twisted texts. And it's in 1 John 4, verse 8, with the phrase, God is love. Now, here's my outline this morning. I want to go ahead and give it to you in advance. And I'm also going to be spending most of my time on the first two points. So if you feel like those are draining on a little long, that's intentional. And the last two points will be fairly brief. So here's, here's the first, uh, here's the outline. First one, the error of God's love for us. So I want to talk about how is this passage misinterpreted? The error of God's love for us. Second, the explanation of God's love to us. And that's where I hope to walk through first John four, seven and eight specifically and, uh, or sorry, four, seven through 11 and really explain the text um, in its context from first John. And then the effect of God's love on us and the evidence of God's love in us. So the first point is not going to have anything to do with first John, the, the text proper. It's just going to be talking about some of the misunderstanding surrounding our culture. When we talk about God being love, but then we're going to dive in specifically and the last three points are going to be straight out of first John four, seven through 11 with the explanation, the effect and the evidence of God's love. So let's begin with the error, shall we? Since we're off to a real negative start. First John four, eight, God is love. Now, if you think this passage, maybe this passage doesn't come to your mind as one that's often ripped out of context. It certainly doesn't to me, but the concept of God being love is vastly misunderstood in our day. And so that's why we're taking it up. Not because this particular text, but the phrase God is love is twisted to mean all sorts of bizarre and unbiblical things. For instance, just two weeks ago, Richard Blackstone wrote this article called the God of unconditional love. All right. So this is fresh off the internet, which is the, you know, as you know, the place to find all things interesting. Here's what he says. Indeed. Remember this. Your very first creation on this life journey here on earth was when you created the person that you are now. You chose who you were going to be before you entered this physical plane. If you do not accept and love who you are, you are condemning your original creation and not taking responsibility for the magnificent creature you call yourself. Love yourself first and foremost. See the beauty within And love the essence that you are unconditionally. If you love yourself unconditionally, you will love God unconditionally. Because you and God are one. You will bring a balance to your life because because God loves you unconditionally too. Where do you start with that? Error is where you start. I'm not going to pick that apart. That would be a 45-minute lecture. But here's the point, right? If you love yourself, you'll love God. 
love yourself unconditionally because God loves you unconditionally too. I think that much is clear. The rest, I'm a bit fuzzy on. This belief that God is a God of pure love, accepting, forgiving, non-judgmental, is all over the place in Western culture. Let me give you three examples, all right, of how this error might sound in our culture today. God is love means God accepts people universally. That's pretty clear from what Richard was saying here in this excerpt from one of his articles. It might come out sounding something like this. Look, I think Jesus is fine, but I believe a devout Muslim or a Buddhist or even a good atheist will certainly find God. Or I don't think God would send a person who lives a good life to hell just for holding the wrong belief. And this approach seems very inclusive, doesn't it? But it's actually more exclusive than Christianity is. Let me explain why. This approach says good people will find God, but bad people won't. So if you're a devout Muslim, devout Buddhist, devout atheist, whatever devout atheist means, you'll find God if you're good. That's exclusive. Only good people find him. Only religious people or non-religious good people. But what about the moral failures? What about the people that have blown it? Well, they're excluded. The gospel says this. The people who know they aren't good can find God and the people who think they are good cannot find him. That's what the gospel says. But what about non-Christians who believe their moral efforts will help them reach God? Well, they're excluded. So you see, both approaches are exclusive, but the gospel's way more inclusive in its exclusivity than that. Because the gospel says it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done, you can be welcomed and fully embraced instantly through faith in Jesus Christ. That's exclusive, but not as exclusive as saying you can get to heaven if you're a good person. Because that rules out a lot of people. The gospel doesn't rule out anybody except people who won't believe the gospel. So that's one example. God is love means he accepts us universally. So there's no need for Jesus, our culture says, but that's foolish. Here's a second thing. God is love means God forgives people unconditionally. There's no need for this bloody cross that Christians talk about all the time. It might come out sounding like this. I believe in a personal relationship with a loving God, and yet I don't believe in Jesus Christ at all. Or my God is a God of love. He forgives us. That's his job. I've heard people say that. Jesus dying on the cross for sin is disgusting. It's harsh. It's inhumane. I can't believe in a God who would do that. My God loves people. So how ironic. In an effort to make God more loving, people who reject the cross make him less loving. It's less lo- it, to say that you believe in a God of love and not to believe in the cross is ridiculous because the pinnacle of God's expression of love is the giving of his son to bear his own wrath for sinners. It's actually let to, to say you believe in a God of love, but not to embrace the cross is to not believe in a God of love. It's to believe in a God of sentimentality. 
Here's a third way. Sometimes this is said, God is love means God receives people non-judgmentally. So God is love. First of all, he accepts people universally. He forgives people unconditionally and he receives people non-judgmentally. Maybe it sounds like this. I can't believe in a God who sends people to hell to suffer eternally. What kind of loving God is filled with wrath? Listen, any loving person on earth is filled with wrath. Think about how you would feel if your daughter was raped. Do you respond with benign tolerance? I love people. No, you're raging at that. Why? Because you love your daughter. If you are indifferent to that, you do not love your daughter. Becky Pippert writes this, God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer of sin which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. So God's wrath in many ways is an expression of his love. It's not an opposition to his love. It's because sin is so serious. It's because his glory matters so much. And it's because he loves us so deeply that his wrath is provoked by sin. Now, the question then becomes, where did we get this in Western culture? Where did we get this idea of this sentimental view of love that's universally accepting and unconditionally forgiving and receiving people non-judgmentally? And that if 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 you're judgmental in any way, depending on how we define that, or have any degree of wrath toward anything or anger or upset about something, then that makes you no longer loving. Well, David Wells, I think, helpfully summarizes why this worldview is so prevalent and what we can do about it. In his new book, God in the Whirlwind, he writes the following. We see God very often through the lens of our culture. And in this psychological world that we live in, the God of love is love because he offers us inward balm, medicine, peace. Empty, distracted, meandering, and dissatisfied, we come to him for help. Fill us, we ask, with a sense of completeness. Fill our aching emptiness within. So therefore, in our culture, our wounds become the prism through which we see all of reality. It's through this prism that we see God. And the value that God has for us as a culture is simply his value in resolving these internal pains and wounds. Tell me if you don't see that and experience that. I think he's right. He concludes by saying, those who live in this psychological world think differently from those who inhabit a moral world. In a psychological world, we want therapy. In a moral world, we need redemption. In truth, the God of love inhabits a moral world. God, therefore, stands before us not as our therapist or our concierge. He stands before us as the God of utter purity to whom we are morally accountable. He's objective to us, and he's not lost within the misty senses of our internal world. His word summons us to stand before the God of the universe, to hear his command that we must love him and love our neighbor as ourselves. 
So I think Wells is onto something. He, he, he's nailing something here. He's saying, look, a lot of people live within this psychological framework where everything about God and his relation to them is interpreted through their needs and, and their felt needs, their wants, their desires. And they don't take into account that evil doesn't exist in a psychological world. Only pain does. But the problem with that is the Bible doesn't operate out of that framework. The Bible operates out of a moral framework. This is right. This is wrong. And we're getting further and further away from that as a culture. The idea of right and wrong. I mean, this therapeutic mindset and the way it's treated in Christianity is thoroughly postmodern. It's thoroughly a part of our culture. And the church is unwittingly in many ways embracing that as what Christianity is. So even when we talk about God and objective God to us and sin and this reality that we've broken a law or transgressed or failed to do things that this God's required us to do. And that this Christ had to come and lay his life down and die on a cross to avert the wrath of God for the sin that we've committed and to live a perfectly righteous life so that we could by faith be receive that righteousness and be acquitted by our judge and embraced and adopted by him as our father and brought into his family and receive the gift of the Holy spirit upon repentance and faith of when we hear all that, it doesn't make sense to most people because it has nothing to do with their wounds and their pain. Now, there is a place, don't get me wrong, the Bible addresses our wounds and our pain and our difficulties and the way we experience life. But get this, that's not the fundamental problem to be resolved. The fundamental problem to be resolved is our sin needing to be forgiven. That's the fundamental problem. That's the source of a lot of other problems is an unreconciled relationship with God. So that we start there and then we work with people on the way they're experiencing life. But we have, but we have to, they have to be reconciled to God first. Otherwise we're just putting band-aids on things on deep, deep puncture wounds that they're going to bleed to death. You can't manage sin. You can't treat sin other than with the blood of Christ. So that's, that's a lot to say or maybe a little to say about a massive error. But I hope you get the, get the gist of, of what we're talking about and why this is such a concern and why it's going to become incre- what I think is going to become increasingly a concern in our culture as we continue to evolve. So let's get to the text then because it's not, fundamentally we need to understand what this phrase, God is love means. And so that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about. So that was the first point, the error of God's love. Now let's talk about the explanation of God's love. And we're going to look at verses nine and 10 of first John four here. So let's, let's bury our nose in the book for a minute and let's, uh, let's understand what God wants us to, wants us to understand. First John four, nine and 10 in this, the love of God was made manifest. Now notice verse nine comes right on the heels of right at the end of verse 10 or verse eight, sorry where the phrase God is love is mentioned. God is love. Now John is going to explain what is in his mind when he thinks about God being love. Verse nine, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. So how do we know God is love? How do we know God is loving? He's got to do something. He's got to act. He's got to manifest something. He's got to demonstrate his love. And he does this. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that, that we, so that we might live through him. In this is love, 
Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So notice God's love is wrapped up with all these different ideas. This idea of the incarnation, God sending his son into the world. This idea of the death of Christ, that he sent his son to be the propitiation. That is the sacrifice by which God's wrath is averted from us for our sin. And notice this response from God, this love that is flowing from God is not owing to anything in us that is lovely. Not that we loved God, John says, but that he loved us. Obviously, we're dead. First John 9 says, because God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So we're in a bad situation. We're in spiritual death. We don't love God. We don't love others, at least not the way God wants us to. And so God has to do something about it. Or he chooses to do something about it. He doesn't have to do it. That's the marvel of his love. He chooses to do something about it. He sends his son into the world so that we might live through him. And how do we come to life? How do we come to spiritual life? Verse 10. This work of Jesus on the cross by which God's wrath is satisfied, assuaged, averted from us. Now, that's what God's love is all about in this text. But let me step back here for just a couple of minutes and talk about the complexity of God's love in the Bible. Because this, this idea of God being love is, is I think, a, a richer biblical concept than sometimes we, we fully grasp. D.A. Carson, the biblical scholar, wrote a book a number of years ago called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. And I encourage you to get that book. I think it's free online right now. It's just about 90 pages. It's very brief. It's a collection of four or five talks he gave. But I think he wonderfully, if you're willing to sit with him for a while and let him push you to the Bible... He gives in that book five distinguishable ways the Bible speaks about the love of God and why it's not as easy of a doctrine to understand at first as we, as we think. Here's his five. I'll give you a little preview, and then you can, if it, if it piques your interest, I encourage you to dive into it. Here's the first one. He talks about the love of God in the Bible is talked about as the peculiar love of the Father for the Son. So there's this language, especially in the gospel of John, for instance, the father loves the son and the son loves the father. So there's this peculiar love that the father and the son have for each other. That's an element of the love of God in the Bible. A second element is God's providential love or care over all that he's made. The love of God is over all of his works, everything in his creation from the birds to the seas, to the air, to the sun, to the all the stars in the universe, the loving kindness of God is over all he has made and his providential care is over all he has made. And at that level, God loves the world that he has made. Okay. So that's an element of God's love in the Bible. Also, there's an element of God's saving stance toward this fallen world. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So that's the love of God too. And I think that's the love of God that John's picking up in 1 John 4, 9 and 10. 
It's this saving disposition of God toward his world that he wants to save it. And so how's he going to do it? He's going to send his son to the world that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Well, how does that happen? They believe in him. Their sins get forgiven. Why do their sins get forgiven? Because God sent his son into the world to be the propitiation for sin. And so on the basis of that work of Christ, God can look at Jesus and say, yep, I can forgive that person justly because Jesus has paid for their sin. And so this saving stance toward his fallen world is a way that God's love is explained in the Bible. A fourth way is God's particular, effective, selecting, saving love toward his elect. For instance, Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So there's this particular, effective love that God has for his people. That is those whom he has chosen. And then... A fifth way is God's provisional love that is based on our obedience. Jude 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. John 15, 9, if you obey my commandments, you will remain in my love. See, in this sanctification debate that's going on, we don't get that kind of category. That there is a kind of love that is conditioned on obedience that's talked about in the Bible. So if you hold these perspectives and they're not five different kinds of loves, they're five different manifestations and expressions of the one love of God that is presented in the Bible, the God of love. But you see, when we hold these tensions together and we understand that the love of God can mean it can be nuanced in, in slightly different ways throughout the Bible, depending on who he's talking to and what he's talking about. Then we can apply these truths with insight and sensitivity and avoid the cliches that muddy the waters of our understanding of God's love. For instance, cliches like this, God, God's love is unconditional. That's not a helpful statement. Why? Because that's true with number four, that is God's particular saving love toward his elect, but it's not true in regards to his provisional love that's based on our obedience. Or God loves everyone exactly the same way. Well, that's certainly true with number two, God's providential love over all that he has made, his saving disposition toward the world. But what about his church? No, he has a special love for them. So, see, we, we just have to be careful, all right? And, and, and these, these days are not days of great clarity. They're days of great broad brush strokes that sound really good at first until you sit on them for about 30 seconds. And then you're like, uh, wait, <laughs> that sounded really good. I, I think I can be encouraged by that, but hold on. Because the, the deeper you, you go into God's word and the, and the more you study it and the more you try to bring your brain into submission to this book and really understand it in its context, the more that evangelical cliches will just jar you. And they, they've jarred me. So here's what Carson concludes. He says, we can't allow any one of these ways of talking about the love of God to be diminished by the others, even as we cannot, on scriptural evidence, allow any one of them to domesticate all the others. 
God is God and he is one. Not only must we gratefully acknowledge that God in the perfection of his wisdom has thought it best to provide us with these various ways of talking of his love, if we are to think of him aright, but we must hold these truths together and learn to integrate them in biblical proportion and balance. And I think that's a good, wise word for us. Learning to integrate these in biblical proportion and balance and not just saying, well, this says that, so that can't mean that. Do you do that with the Bible? Well, this is what the Bible says here, and this is what the Bible says here. So, okay, one of these isn't true, or this whole book isn't true. No, what we do is when, we, when Scripture jars us, we pursue clarity. God, you are one. These fit. Now let's figure out how. See that? That's a believing disposition towards Scripture. That's a life that's submitted to the authority of Scripture. That's a, that's, a, that's a heart that is desired to say, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And I know I just twisted that Scripture. <laughs> that's not what that Scripture means, okay? <laughs> Great job, Mark. <laughs> but you get my point, right? It's an illustration. It's not an interpretation. <laughs> can't dig out of that hole. All right. So let's just, let's, uh, I never stepped in it. So you've got this idea that we're, we're to hold these things in tropical biblical proportion and balance. And the, the, the most, I think, enriching times of personal development for me, at least in understanding God's word have been when God by his spirit and often through the help of others, the, the, the community of the church, learning to talk these things through and saying, okay, how do you take that? What, how do we, how do we, and then through the help of a brother or sister, bing, light bulb goes off. And that's amazing. That's wonderful. It's what the church is for. We're meant to take this book and study it in community, not huddle off in our basement saying, oh God, please tell me what this means. No, we're to come together in worship and around this word together and have it preached to us, but we're also to work it out in fellowship day by day as we seek to wrestle and bring our lives in conformity to all that God has said. So that, I mean, the, the church community is, is vital to our understanding of God's word. So that's the explanation of God's love to us. Let's move on quickly, and these points are going to be much briefer, with the effect of God's love on us and the evidence of God's love in us. Because here's the point, and, and John doesn't want to leave us with just this, this mental idea of God's love. No, this, this demonstration of God's love in history in sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world to live in our place and die for our sin is, is to have a ma- radical life-transforming impact on us. It is. That, that message is meant to shape us and affect us. That's the whole thing that John is driving for in his letter. He's trying to help us get, understand what God has done, what effect that should have on us, both in our thinking and our, in our believing and in our living so that we can be assured that we belong to God. That's why John is writing first John. He's writing, it's an assurance letter. It's a letter according to first John five twenty. Here's his big summary that is meant to, to help us understand. He says in first John five twenty. if anyone says, sorry, that's four twenty, five twenty, And we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true And we are in him who is true. 
So that's what John is driving for. That's the last couple of verses in the book. We may know him who is true, and we might be assured that we are in him, that we are true Christians. So that's what John is driving for. So it, this love of God is intended to have an effect on us, and that effect is written in first verse 11, 1 John 4, 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. There it is. That's the effect that God's love is meant to have on us. He says, beloved, great, old, rich word. Just mean you are the loved of God, the special, peculiar objects of his love. You are, you are, you are his people. Beloved, if God so loved us, so loved us, if he, if he loved us to this extent, with this degree of sacrifice, with this degree of evidence and manifestation that he was willing to give his only son, as Romans 8.32 says, if God did this great work, how will he not also along with us give us all things? If God did not spare his son, That's the pinnacle, that's the height, that's the ultimate expression of his love. And if he so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, what does it mean to love one another as God has loved us? Well, again, that's a long, that's a sermon in itself too. But let's just dip down just for a minute and get a piece It's clear that God's love for us is meant to produce our love for others. That the vertical experience of God's love in saving us from our sin is intended to to produce horizontal love for others. Now, how do we measure this? If God so loved us to such a sacrificial degree where he literally inconvenienced himself for our good then we also ought to love one another. It gives us a different perspective on what love is, isn't it? Love is, at least in this passage, love for one another is self-sacrificial commitment to another's good by which you are willing to inconvenience yourself to get it. So here's how we can measure how well we're, we're doing in our love. To the degree that we are willing to inconvenience ourselves, to bear the burden, to sacrifice, to seek another's good at our own cost to that degree we love as God has loved us. So do you love people? Of course you do, if you're God's child. Of course you do. You love. But this love is to be measured by and evaluated by the love of Christ for us. Isn't this how Paul applies it to husbands and wives in Ephesians 5, right? We're to measure husbands, our love for our wives, by the measure of Christ's love for us. And it takes it out of the realm of the ethereal. It takes us out of the realm of, well, loving one another, it means that to you, but it means this to me. How can you tell me I'm not, I'm not loving? Well, because love can be seen in the manifestation of sacrifice. Now, let me be clear. Love is more than self-sacrifice. 1 Corinthians 13 says it very clearly. If I give of my body to be burned, but I have not love, I profit nothing. So, isn't that interesting? 
There's another jarring part of the Bible. You can give yourself away self-sacrificially and yet not love. Because it can be motivated by all sorts of other things. Martyrdom can, can be a bad thing sometimes. He's willing to give up his life. He's willing to lay down his life. He's willing to die. He must be loving. Not necessarily, Paul says. Could be a loud gong or a clanging cymbal in God's ears. Because we can do that and not have love. So love has a, an affectional component too, doesn't it? It has a heart component, not just an action. We hear that. That's a cliche. Love's an action, not a feeling. No, it isn't. <laughs> it's a feeling that is accompanied by actions. God doesn't love you. I mean, think about if God loved us that way. All right, son, go on down, save them. I don't like them. No, God loved us and that's why he acted. He gave his son. So love is more than self-sacrifice, but it's not less. And, and we need not necessarily always feel self-sacrificial in order for our love to be genuinely self-sacrificial. It's not like you always have to feel, oh, I'm so inconvenienced by this. Oh, this is such a trial to me. Oh, this is so difficult. Now we're going to feel that from time to time, right? We're going to feel this, this is a, take up your cross, care for this person, love them, do what you don't want to do in the moment, get off the couch and sweep the kitchen, whatever it is. But I mean, we don't all, we're not always measuring our, or we shouldn't always be, okay, is this sacrificial? Is this, I mean, you can't be paralyzed by that. No one's, no one can live that way. But the point is, is that in the aggregate, stepping back and looking at the whole of my life, I say, okay, yeah. I'm behaving in a self-sacrificial way. Now, this is really clear in the way moms care for young kids, isn't it? I mean, your whole life is self-sacrificial. It's inconveniencing yourself all the time for the good of others. And I just want you to know, weary, younger mom, I live with one. All right. And she's wonderful. But she's not the only one in our church. God is pleased with what you're doing. If you are doing it by faith in Jesus Christ, resting in God's love for you, being motivated by that, and seeking to deny yourself even when you're not being motivated by that, but because you love your children, you care for your children, you are a massive reflection of God to the world. It's, it's growing more and more rare, isn't it? Fifth Street video illustrates that all the time. All right, so that's the effect that God's love is meant to have on us. It's meant to transform us into loving, sacrificial individuals. So John Stott says, No one who has been to the cross and seen God's immeasurable and unmerited love displayed there can go back to a life of selfishness. It's just true. You can't, you can't experience the love of God in Christ and just return to a life that is bent on your own self, divorced from love for others. So that's the effect. And very finally, very briefly, the evidence of God's love in us. And this is verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So he gives the positive in verse 7. Then he gives the negative side in verse 8. This is very common to John. He loves writing this way. Beloved, let us love one another. Why? For that comes from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So you want to know if you know God? You want to know if you've been born of God? Look at your life. Are you a loving person? 
So that's the positive, then the negative in verse eight. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. I love John. John's an elementary school teacher, isn't he? I mean, sometimes his statements are really complex and difficult to understand, but I love it when John just puts the cookies right there on the bottom shelf and says, look, God is love. If you love him, if you love him and others, you know him because he's like that. And if you don't, you don't. Have a nice day. And that's John. That's John. And I love his simplicity. I love that he just, he just lays it out there very clearly. So the evidence that we know God's love is that we share God's love. To receive God's love in Christ is to become a conduit of God's love for Christ. To know God is to be assured that we're born again and that we have been born again, born again into a lover of God and others. Brothers and sisters, God is love. God is love and he's love in this way. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much this morning for loving us, for demonstrating that love in sending your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be the propitiation for our sins. When we really think about that, Father, we, can, we can't even begin to take it in. It is overwhelming what you have done for us. And we thank you that you have not spared him. Help us. And, 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 and what, what, what dishonor we bring you when we fail to recognize you as a God of love, as you have revealed yourself. So help us to rest in your love, to be assured by your love, to remain in your love, to abide in your love, and to show and share your love with others. We ask for the glory of Jesus. Amen.